thanks for being here. Matthew and I met and said, let's do this some more. And we looked at the calendar and we could fit four weeks in right now. Um, This week, next week, week after. Then I'll be in Israel for a week, which is really great. And then the first week in March. After that, I'm going to be teaching this class during this time slot called the Spring Jewish Holidays, uh, which is we're going to make our way through all the holidays that come in the spring and learn, just learn about them and uh, learn their, learn on every level, which is the way we like to do it. And so if I'm able, I want to come and be a student in this class. Wonderful. Then we'll get to chime in and hear about, like, the, there are also analogous Christian holidays. Uh, that'll be an interesting thing to add to our mix. Rip-off holidays. Yeah, yeah right, right. Rip-off holidays. That's funny. Is that like Christmas? Like Easter. Like the holidays that we, you know, stole from Judaism. That's oh, what I mean, the rip-off holidays. Like Pentecost is really Shavuot, that kind of thing. Right, right. Repurposed holidays, right. That's, that's, that's good. Very generous of you. Well, she is very generous. If she likes, if she likes you. If she likes you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and Matthew and I thought, first of all, we'd like to start this series of classes, as we did a couple in the fall, with um, some centering, just some, uh, some quiet, some chant, just as a way to begin. That's that's what we're going to do, just for the first few minutes, and then I'll tell you about what we're going to cover today. Mm-hmm. And I have a chant if you don't. No, I, I yeah. saw you brought so, one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, how many of you were, no, let me ask it the other way, because most of the faces are familiar. How many are you joining this class for the first time? Okay, so a few. Um, and then everyone else was here for some bit of the, the last the eight-week course. <clears throat> so, we really started developing I think an interesting sense of community and intimacy over the last um, eight weeks. And I don't think it's something you had to be here for to to jump in now, but I think there's a sort of uh, kind of resonance that we've built up. So I hope everyone will feel comfortable stepping into that. But it's something very, well, special and intimate that was cultivated between Voices, people from two different traditions coming together. We looked at some of the wounds, some of the pain between our traditions. And as I was thinking about it this morning, a poem came to mind from Hafez, who's a Sufi poet, a Muslim Sufi poet. And I thought I would read this poem because I think it maybe says something about the opening that's happening uh, among us and across our traditions. So... Let's first just take a moment to settle into a little silence. And then I want to read the poem and introduce a chant. And after you've heard the chant once, feel free just to join in singing it. And we'll sing the chant for a little while and then hold the silence a bit longer. You may want to just begin by noticing your breath. And your heartbeat. 
letting go of any stress or tension that you've brought with you and arriving here in this place. From Hafez. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Slowly blooms the rose within, slowly blooms the rose within, slowly blooms the rose within, slowly blooms the Slowly blooms the rose with
How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Thank you. That made me think about in the Zohar, the great <coughs> central mystical work of medieval Judaism. It opens with an analogy of the 13 petaled rose. And in that 13th century, in Provence and Spain, Arab, Muslim culture, Christian influence, Jewish, and all were interacting. We were all learning from each other. So it's a nice analogy for the fact that we actually are always learning from each other, even when we feel like we're keeping the walls up. And now we're open to learning again. Um, Matthew and I decided that, you know, it, it, this past fall and, and, and now we've kind of alternated or woven together both affective, our own experiences of our tradition, pardon? I have a question. And uh, along with wanting to make sure that our historical consciousness is awakened, that we know what we mean when we say first century this or second century that. You know, so uh, we've been going back and forth and weaving it together because because this, we can, <laughs> right? We're not. And we need both. We need both. This isn't a course for credit. There's not a syllabus we have to complete. We're in a house of worship, and we can bring as much of our experience together in a way that doesn't require a final paper. So that allows us to weave back and forth. And today we thought we'd be on the more affective and the more personal side of expression. I, we, we, made a, um, we made a little syllabus for the next four weeks, which I'll distribute at the end of class, um, which I like, we like a lot. Uh, and before we continue, I'll, I'll take Ruth's question in a minute, but Stu was reminding me, Stu is undergoing treatment, and so his immune system is like, so he loves you, but doesn't want to hug you. So you have to send him good energy. I want energy. to, but I can't. He wants to. <laughs> But he shouldn't be hugging you. So send Stu your beautiful energy and know that he has to maintain a, 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 a physical space around him uh, just, just because of germs. Uh, Ruth? I, I, this has come to my mind, um, and I'm hoping you guys will address this. Anyway, the question of how you guys, or they, depending on how you, ended up with a monastic tradition Oh, how Christianity ended up, yeah. yeah. And we have no... Let's write that down. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, do you have a pen? I do. I do. It's okay. Um, That's a great question. I, I would love to talk about that a little bit, too. And I think also there's much more opportunity for silence. Right, right. Right. We both have traditions of silence, but certainly monastic settings help cultivate right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you. You know, you know the joke. What's the joke? 
A lot of you know the joke. Okay, so there's the, there's, there's the monk in the scriptorium, and he's poring over the ancient texts. And then he's all by himself, but then this wail of despair is heard throughout the monastery. And they all come rushing in to the scriptorium to see why the monk is so upset. He says, it's celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> it was a scribal error. That's so the first time I was here for a weekend retreat with Jonathan that he led on every, uh, all my bones shall, shall praise. And it was on, you know, praying with our whole bodies. And at the end of the, the gathering, I offered a chant. We all joined in it. And the words of it were, every cell of this body sings glory. Every cell of this body sings glory. And at the end of it, someone said, they thought we were singing every celibate body <laughs> sings glory and that it wasn't particularly appropriate for Jewish chant. Right. So that's the problem with oral transmission. Okay. Um, so we wanted to start this series this time by talking about what we love about our respective faiths and traditions. Um, and, uh, and maybe what we hate. Yeah, but no, I'm starting with what we love. We'll, we'll, that's, my, that's my philosophy. Uh, <laughs> complain later, because after, after you've listed what you love, the complaints don't seem quite so, quite so overwhelming. Um, what you love, appreciate, da, 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 um, and uh, about being a Jew. Now, being a Jew is a complicated identity. About being a practicing Jew, being Jewish. Judaism. It's like whatever in that, in that constellation speaks to you. And I want to do the same for Christians. Uh, what do you love about your faith, about your tradition, about the practice of your faith? You know, what, so what it gives you, what, uh, why you continue to choose this path if it's a path you've chosen. Um, and uh, we just thought it would be a great way to start to hear what we, what, what resonates and what we value deeply about it. I'm actually going to write some down. Shall we speak? I think we should just sort of like open it up. That's my impulse. And okay. Then, and then we'll chime in. And then in. we'll share some of our. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ruth? It's funny because I usually don't speak in this class, but for me, I love that we're in a tradition that um, the, a focal point is rest. Oh. The rhythm of rest the on the Sabbath. Of mm -hmm. taking time mm -hmm. out and just being, not that people do that much, but that that's in there. Mm -hmm. That rest is. Lovely. Yeah. Amy? Um, I love the tradition of Shabbos. Mm -hmm. Shabbos. 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 The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Which is, which is, you know, a part of that is rest, but it's also. Other people think of it. Right. Right. I love the cultural identity. I love that we're people that talk with our hands and and are very vital and alive. Uh huh. Vital, alive, talk with our hands. Okay. <laughs> 
uh, Carol? There's two things that come to my mind. One is this, this back and forth between slavery and freedom, an, a, an acknowledgement mm -hmm. of both states as, as, as what I go back and forth um, from. Slavery, freedom. And the other is the idea that all these, I'll say people because I prefer to, but all these people sat around 5,000 or more years ago mm -hmm. and figured out how human behavior works mm -hmm. and what helps and what hurts. It, it totally blows my mind all the time. Well, that's wonderful. The way my teacher Ira Eisenstein said was a 3,000 year long discussion of ethics. Yeah. Can I write that down? Sure. Is that close <laughs> enough? Or, or what would you like me to say? That when you say that, I see a bunch of old men sitting around and talking. I oh. think it's bigger than that. I, I, I really do think it's bigger than that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you could say it. Now that I put that out, you can write it down anyway. Okay, I think, so. one, I think one thing is what was written down 5,000 years ago, and then it's the history since then of the discussion of it. Both. Or two different Both. things. Yeah. Both. Okay. Ongoing search for meaning. That's good. <laughs> but, then it's old. but it's an ancient it's, conversation that you get to enter into a ancient. living stream. Of, yeah. Ancient. Okay, close enough, I hope. We're not starting a new discussion about these things. We're entering into an ancient discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, the emphasis on healing the world through acts of compassion. Mm -hmm. Healing the world through acts of compassion. And justice. And justice. Or equity is a better word. Through acts of justice and compassion. Um, uh, Bob? Love that when you ask oh, they're both. Oh, you're Bob, too. There are two Bobs here, and you're Bob. Any other Bobs? Okay. Bob and then Bob. I, I love when you ask a Jew a question and you get a question back. <laughs> Culture of questions. Culture of questions. Other Bob? The, what impresses me at my most identified with is continuity, that there's been uh, an identity over the centuries, we're still here. Mm -hmm. It's survival. Right. Mm. Thank you. Uh, oh. Yeah. Diane. Diane. <laughs> uh, this may sound strange, but I like that we have been a minority and the underdog. Mm -hmm. Because I don't like to be the same as everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> minority, <laughs> underdog, unique identity. Yeah. Laura? I um, am a 
particularly drawn to the fact that in our text, in the Torah, the characters are ancestors, and even the way our God is portrayed are deeply flawed. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not whitewashed. <laughs> These right. are not nice people sometimes. Uh, humanity of ancestors, um, and I'm going to say, and of God. <laughs> sounds very that's Christian a weird thing to say. Did you, oh, so that sounds very Christian. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean it that way. That's very interesting. <laughs> uh, in that God loses God's temper, God, uh, we have an ongoing dialogue with God. And God the, repents of things. God, yeah, God, God forgives, forgets, forgives, yeah, yeah. Uh, and? I think you'd call this uh, community. It's when two people are talking together and uh, suddenly it comes out in conversation. You're Jewish? Oh, I'm Jewish too. Mm -hmm. And immediately there's a bond that uh. is not expressed, <coughs> but it's so big and it's, it's so there. Okay, so the bond of Jewish identity. I love the concept of the Midrash. When we want to sell a, tell a story or make a point, we pick the parts of our tradition that fit it and ignores the ones that don't fit it. Okay. The right to interpret. Right. Creative engagement with scripture. Right. So yeah. That's right. It's all creative. Creative engagement with scripture. Engagement with scripture. Okay, uh, Blaze? I like that, one of the things I like is that the wisdom of Judaism, that I can find um, <coughs> counterparts or parallels in nearly every other tradition that I look at. Oh. So the universality of Jewish wisdom. Universality? of Jewish wisdom. Jay? I like to, I, I, I like to um, post two. One is gratitude. Mm -hmm. That even all this exists. And we can't lose sight of that. Thank gratitude you. for the tradition. Gratitude for whatever's on that board. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. For what? For whatever's on that board. Gratitude, Gratitude for, all of, it. for all of it. Okay. And the, and the umbrella, you're right, the umbrella of tradition. And this does cause all religions. And the other thing which, which, which came to mind in the poem you read, Matthew, is, um, is, you know, I'm just going to throw out two words and we can interpret it any way you like. It's love and fear. And right. the Bible is packed <clears throat> with interpretations of love and fear. And I think you know, that rose opened because it found the light of love. And and that's the key to the whole Love and fear are are are, are fundamental religious concepts in Judaism. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Ellen? Uh, two things <clears throat> that our teaching is that the the deepest part of our soul our soul is pure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that every human being can do teshuva, can, can make amends, can say sorry, <laughs> and that 
while communal prayer is essential, I can also talk directly to God without anybody in between me. Yeah. In between us. Again, again. <coughs> and the what we call the immediate, no mediator, immediate relationship with God. Let's stop there for now. Oh, I got one. Oh, Susan. That we bless all the time. There are many blessings, mm -hmm. and that we praise God no matter what. Praise God no matter what. And, and we're constantly sharing blessings. There's a blessing for everything. Unless we're cursing God, but... Well, but even... There's even a blessing then. for that. Right. That's right. And blessings for everything. And let's not leave out humor. Oh, okay. Uh, if you music, say so, music, Carol. Music, and music. And food. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, 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 good. Oh. And, sh and schnapps on Saturday. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Music. Food. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Did you find one? Yeah, they stink, don't they? This gives me a headache. Okay. Music, food, humor. Humor. Thanks, uh, Diane. Uh, okay, wonderful. Uh, now. Um, what? Just from a Christian perspective. I want to hear about what you... Are you talking from a Christian perspective about Judaism? No. No, that's right. But, it, but the truth... You were, you were very... All the Christians were very polite. <laughs> but the, the truth is... There I aren't could, a lot of us today. I, no. I could, I could really second so much of that in my own... Good, then I want to hear it because I'm going to make a new list over okay. here. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, you're giving Christianity half a page. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> Although, did you see this very profound symbol that was created? That's the cross and the Star of David merged. <laughs> so I guess I would say this rich travesty. It's of, fine if you just keep repeating things. Let me okay. here. I'll I'll start writing. You start writing. Okay. okay. There's this richness of the Christian tradition that's very similar in mirroring that, where there's been this mystical social justice, uh, uh, very contemplative tradition. And I really liked it when you were saying about, um, what was it, slavery and freedom. And I guess in my perspective from Christianity, there's an embracing of both the woundedness and the wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that there's like on a labyrinth, there's this becoming as well as just being. There's a stillness and a movement, a journey that's um, uniting and including nature and the creation and everyone. and. As far as that minority you were talking about, in some ways I feel that I'm a minority in the Christian faith because a lot of the way that Christianity is presented is just doesn't resonate with my being. So I guess I'd like to sense I'm a minority in the Christian faith <laughs> and that there's something much deeper than a lot of times. There's so much um, like jewels of wisdom that's a uh, wisdom that's in the Christianity that's in a lot of rubble that you have to kind of dig or deep. I really wonder if the voice you're talking about is a minority in the tradition, or if the other voice is just a very vocal 
All right. Okay. Mm, you know, I, okay. you know, I wonder about the numbers. You know, we right. give all yeah. the all right. the the media coverage to right. the sort of right. fundamentalist. And side. the metaphor of having to dig a little to yeah. get to it, mm -hmm. uh, I I understand also mm -hmm. from all the accretions on Jewish practice mm -hmm. that have built up over the centuries. Other Christian voices. What do you appreciate about your tradition? Or about being a Christian, or about the other two or three of you out there, <laughs> right, Margaret? <laughs> Well, I'm struck by uh, a great gratitude for having our roots in the Abrahamic Jewish tradition. And that's kind of saying what uh, Barbara just said. Roots in Judaism. Um, that's one thing I like very much. Um, very much shared. Um, <coughs> and then what I'm thinking, uh, just in more Christian terms, there are two things that I that come to mind. One is I very uh, I really like the idea of the incarnation, the incarnational aspect that um, that our belief is that basically we are all have God within us. We're all you know God has incarnated in all humans. And the third one is the sacraments. Sacraments. Uh, not only those physical, actual realities that we, you know, that we share the sacrament, but that our lives then are sacramental lives. So sacraments and sacramental, a sacramental worldview. Yes, yes, yes. Excellent, excellent. Here, Liz. Yeah. Um, sacraments for me too, and the incarnation, um, embodiment of spirituality is really important to me. Embodiment. Embodiment of spirituality. <laughs> And one thing I, for years, I went, I walked past the church where I ended up going because I was <coughs> on, on the path of a Hindu mystic called Sri Aurobindo for over 30 years. I was brought up an Anglican and then I came back. So you were brought up an Anglican, then you went into a Hindu path for 30 years and then you came back. Yeah. That's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> no one here recognizes that story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I, that blows me away about Christianity and where I've landed, like Christianity, I don't know how many Protestant different denominations are, there are hundreds and hundreds of them. And I happen to um, go to a church where the, uh, the priest is the husband of the president of the contemplative society, I'm a contemplative. But it blows me away how brokenness is, is we are broken, and that God loves us anyway. And I had no idea when I came back to Christianity that I'd be doing so much shadow work. <laughs> shadow work. Shadow work, mm -hmm. yeah, just mm -hmm. accepting, finding out the brokenness in me, like Janet Cohen says, the cracks are where the lights get in. Mm -hmm. And I feel so privileged to be here. I've never been in a synagogue before. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, that's marvelous. Don't rush off. You can look all around if you want. Come back again. Matthew, do you mind defining um, incarnation and sacrament? I, I yeah, yeah, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. These were on my list of things to talk about, but <clears throat> I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, uh, and we'll we're now we're, we'll see what we mean when we say these things. So let's put that on pause, and then we'll get to it. Um, and also, any, shadow work. Huh? Also, also okay, shadow. All right. Um, any any other loves of the Christian tradition? Yes. Well, I, 
again, I didn't grow up with a strong church background or whatever, but I just came from a monastery where I did a, a very short retreat. And you know, I kind of wrestled with my own issues and wrestled with myself. And I had a spiritual direction section, uh, session with the monk. Mm -hmm. And like when I walk away, I mean, I just, it just feels different. I mean, I can feel, like, not in this huge way, but I do feel more peaceful. Mm -hmm. I do feel loved. I feel like there's a whole, I can feel the vibration of the place. Mm -hmm. It's just some, is, is something peaceful and loving. Mm -hmm. And I'm really just grateful it's there. And that, you know, it, it's not my path. I would never be a monk, <laughs> you know? But, um, and, oh. and I don't really mm -hmm. understand how you can pray all I day. I would say the strength of the contemplative yeah. Tradition in Christianity. Yeah. I'm going to say monastic views, and then also, yes, we've got the contemplative tradition here. Oh, right. And right. then also, you're talking about the um, traditions tend to, in their, in their worship settings, in their, in their culture, they do create a sort of vibration or a resonance, a flavor, you know, an energy. Yeah, that, there. Yeah, and there's a, there's a resonance, a vibration of, of love, peace, quiet that seems to be held in that. Tradition. Yeah, right, the holding yeah. of it. Oh, nicely put. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to say that, but we'll yeah, say Yeah, neither did I, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Vibration <laughs> of peace. Um, <coughs> nice. And Christ. Yes, I think I find it very interesting you use the word Christ and not the word Jesus. Yeah. So we want to find out what that means for Christians. What? Uh huh. Jesus slash. It's not his last name. It's not his last name. Here in the Barbara. If I could just throw in very briefly two personal experiences. One one was in Israel on Easter Sunday, and they have I don't know if you have a through this, but they have a tradition where they start where Jesus was crucified, yep. and, then, and then a holy priest lights a candle, and the candle spread, and sort of like in a cave structure, I think it's Calvary. That was a powerful experience, and mm -hmm. that and that all wraps around the resurrection, mm -hmm. and, and, and the season it happens, and sort of a whole renewal, so right. I would definitely, from my personal experience, put the, put the resurrection. Death and resurrection, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, we'll talk about the liturgical cycles of both traditions as well, and how that ties in. Um, Barbara, you had something. There's just um, a deep intimacy, and the cross symbol is like with the transcendent and as well as the eminent, that there's this evolutionary thrust of greater and greater, you know, love, and then there's this this deep, infinite connection with all that has been and is and will be. And also the sacraments are like what Margot was saying, it's like, it's like everything in life can be, we can be a sacrament, an offering, Beautiful. and everything Beautiful. that the ordinary. And, but yet when we do the sacraments, like when we take the Eucharist, it's like there's a sense that ancestors are there, the angelic realms are there, the saints are there, there's such this sense of this interconnection with all that has been and will be. Beautiful. So, so to, to say a quick word, we'll talk about the doctrine but of the incarnation. I would incarnation, say this, the symbol of the cross sounds yeah. like it's something very significant. <laughs> the word sacrament, just to clarify that quickly in the Christian tradition, I take it it's not really used in the Jewish tradition. No. Um, 
the, the definition in our prayer book of a sacrament is an outward and, and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So an inner spiritual reality that's manifested through some outer uh, sign. And so uh, sacraments take a number of guises in the Christian tradition. Um, water at baptism um, plays a sacramental role. Because the, bread the, water, because the water symbolizes... Symbolizes, right, that the, it's the... So it's, it's an external ritual activity. Right, that carries an inner meaning or inner reality. And that's called a sacrament. A sacrament. So an outer, an outward invisible sign of an inner spiritual grace or, or reality. So the bread and wine, that they are a sacrament of the, the body and blood of, of Jesus. Um, so they're an outward visible sign of something that is also an inward spiritual reality. Um, can you speak of your personal experience when you go through that sacrament as opposed to just sort of an action? I mean, there must be some sort of connection somehow. Um, which, which that's, that's another thing to write on here, too, is just Eucharist. And we can talk about what that means, but that's the sort of principal sacrament in Christianity. Um, but instead of death, death and resurrection, I meant, I meant it's more renewal and resurrection. Renewal, renewal. It's that okay. renewal thing of spring and. and right. Yes. You know, the rising of, of, of the dead. Okay. Well, we know, we know right there. You can leave. We can leave death. For many, death, death is uh, significant. Okay. And death and resurrection. Leave it off. Nancy? You can't get renewed unless you... Yes. Oh, well, uh, before your question, save your question for Which a second. Which is kind of related to this. Oh, okay. What's your question? Well, I've noticed here that you do bread and wine also, and at one point you said the bread was the braiding of all the people together. I never got the explanation of the wine. Oh, um, uh, I didn't say that, probably. Didn't? Probably I didn't say the braiding of all the people together. Um, the bread and wine <laughs> in the Jewish tradition goes back to the ancient temple ritual. Um, as does the bread and wine of the Christian tradition. So we learn in the Bible that uh, there was something called showbread in the special bread. I don't know why it's called showbread. Because you're showing it here. Yeah. I guess. Okay. <laughs> and wine, as a libation, um, were practiced in the ancient temple in Jerusalem as offerings, um, communal sharing, um, when, and you'll remember this from the last section, some of you, the, sh the schematic answer to this is that when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the, the uh, sacrificial and um, priestly life of the Jewish people was eliminated because Jerusalem had been destroyed, the Jewish response was to transfer those rituals to the home. So that every home then explicitly became a microcosm of the holy temple. And that was the Jewish response of how we could carry mm -hmm. our traditions into exile. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so on Friday, the braided bread and the wine was our way of taking the ancient temple traditions and bringing them with us into exile and making it into a home-based tradition, which is one of the main ways that Judaism survived, was by bringing many of those ancient symbols into our homes. Christianity took a different tack. 
they retained the priesthood and took the temple rituals and made them into the Christian rituals by repurposing them, um, but keeping them in a priestly um, trapping. trapping. <clears throat> uh, that's the short answer. They both have, the bread and wine in Christianity and the bread and wine in Judaism both have the same origin in the ancient Judaism that was destroyed. Does that help answer your question? Uh, and it does, but I mean, we have a certain meaning in Christianity for what the bread means and what the right. wine Judaism means. Right, Judaism never did that. Oh, they didn't. No, no, the wine is the wine and the bread is the bread. <laughs> and, you know, it goes back to the story also <laughs> Judaism of... never did that. It goes on the food. Well, it, in, in a way, in a way, and I, I can't speak on behalf of Judaism, but you I can. Think, I think I can, okay, I've got permission now. I think the the uh, the meaning is similar in, in the in Christianity. The bread and wine, midway through the liturgical worship on Sunday morning, the bread and wine is brought forward by people in the congregation. It's not already up front with the priest. It's reserved at the very back of the worship space where you come in the door, and then two people from among the congregation carry it forward. And the bread and wine are supposed to symbolize uh, the work, the labor, the efforts of of our humanity. Uh, that we're carrying forth our, our crushed grapes, our milled wheat, you know, it's a symbol of, of, of our life and our labor. And then it's presented as the oblation on the altar. And I wonder if... Oh, but I thought that the bread being the host yes. and the wine were the body and blood. So that's the transformation. So the, the, the symbol begins, it's brought by the people as a symbol of the people. The life and labor of the whole congregation is brought forward. And then it's consecrated... To, to now symbolize, to now become uh, the body and blood of Jesus. When you which say is consecrated, it means by the priest. By the priest. On behalf of the whole congregation, though. That power is given by the people to the priest. Um, and, you know, St. Augustine, he, he used words when the body, when the bread and wine were elevated, he would say, behold what you are, become what you receive. And so the idea is the people gathered are the body of Christ, are the, the body of the faithful. They present themselves in the broken bread and the crushed grapes to be transformed into the life of God in the world. And then that life is given back to them. But it's, there's this sense of, you know, you receive what you are. You receive, you're offering and then receiving your own mystery in that sacrifice. Um, and, and it is the way Christians dealt with the ending of the temple. There's no longer temple sacrifice. Um, Jesus is, is crucified, is murdered by the Romans. And the, the, the interpretation came to be that his death, therefore, puts an end to sacrifice. We no longer have to sacrifice animals. His death can sort of be the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. And so we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to kill animals. Um, we let his death take that symbolic meaning, and now we have an unbloody sacrifice that's offered week after week. It's the sacrifice of our own life and labor in the bread and wine that becomes the body of Jesus that's given back to us, the gathered body. Um, to make us whole again. Right. And, and because they are gifts of brokenness, they're broken things. It's bread that is broken. It's grapes that are crushed. When you come forward and receive them, in a way you're saying yes to your own brokenness, um, you know, and, and, and receiving that. And in that, finding the wholeness within your brokenness, that we are a single body in that act. We are... Yeah. And that is, I need to say, yeah. and that is a specifically and exclusively Christian, Christian read. Interpret, read 
on the bread and the wine. Because it's interpreted there within the context of temple sacrifice, whereas initially it's not within that context. It replaces the animals on the altar. Right, and in the Jewish tradition, rather than, rather than create a new symbol system to replace the sacrifices that are no longer being given, a new symbolic activity right. that you're describing, the rabbis of the first century, led by their leader, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, in about the year, sometime after the year 70, when the temple was destroyed, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leader of the, essentially the, he, he wasn't the elected leader, he was the, the, the sage of his generation, as it were. Uh, they said, in the absence of temple sacrifices, which, this, remember the catastrophe of the destruction of the temple. The sac temple sacrifices atoned for our sins. And human beings, both in the Christian and Jewish tradition, are inevitably going to sin. Right? It's the same thing as brokenness. Yes, it's like brokenness. However, it's, Judaism doesn't go that way. Instead, they said, what are we going to do? We can't offer sacrifices anymore in order to restore our, um, our whole, un, um, restore our connection to God, right? Because our misdeeds become uh, tears in the fabric that, that make us um, uh, disconnected from God. And there has to be ritual to restore our connection to God. That ritual is called teshuva. Uh, where we uh, in, we don't just the sacrifice doesn't do it by magic. That's okay. The sacrifice doesn't do it by magic. Just like in um, the Christian tradition, you say um, uh, we say that <clears throat> sins between human beings, the sacrifice, Yom Kippur, or the sacrifices don't atone until you've made restitution. Right. Which is so the, the person you wrong. The same in the Christian liturgy. Before people come forward to receive the bread and the wine, before the bread and wine are presented on behalf of the people, um, there's a moment in the liturgy called the peace, the exchange of the peace. And it comes from words of Jesus where he says, if you're going to present your, your sacrifice, your offering of the temple, and you remember that you have a fault with a brother or sister, go and make amends first and then make your offering. Right. And Which so in is the liturgy, we have this moment where we make peace with everyone before we can come to the table. And the Mishnah says, which is the rabbinic compilation of that time, for sins between oneself and God, Yom Kippur atones. For sins between yourself and other people, Yom Kippur does not atone until you have reconciled with your fellow. So it's just a total parallel teaching, right? Where we think, oh, sacrifice magically forgives you, and that's, that's a very simplistic take on it. Uh, however, what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said is not what the Christian tradition did, but said in the, and what he said becomes the foundation of rabbinic Judaism post-temple. In the absence of sacrifices, we must atone to God through prayer, studying Torah, and acts of loving kindness. And this triad becomes the foundation of Judaism as we know it, because we are not a sacrificially based culture anymore. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, Temple Judaism is continuous with Christianity in the way that Christ Christianity, <clears throat> who were Jews, remember, took that uh, uh, symbol system and reworked it into... In Judaism, 
it's continuous with the replacement of sacrifice with prayer, study, and acts of loving kindness. And these become like the, the foundation of rabbinic Judaism. Gail? I, I'm really struck listening to this, that Christianity, with the bread and the wine, continued the symbolic understanding of the sacrifice in the temple, mm-hmm. right. in which the individual brought <clears throat> forward his own animal right. in place of himself mm-hmm. in an act of atonement, okay? having done whatever he did in atonement with humans, but in an act of atonement, and then in some way becoming closer again with God. That's right. Through restoring, animal, restoring. The animal represents himself, offering up mm-hmm. his brokenness, mm-hmm. and we would call it his ego in many ways, um, in an act of submitting all of that to God and letting it go. Mm-hmm. And and when and we then went away from symbolism in many ways in our practice. Um, and the whole issue, what we do with Teshuvah and Yom Kippur, is very kind of literally... Words. Where it's word, words right, and, and, right, right, and right. feeling. Judaism made it into words. It's very deep, but it really separated itself from the symbolism, not just the acts of the temple, mm-hmm. but the symbolism of the temple. And even when we do the bread and the wine at Shabbat, um, we've, we've taken away that symbolism of it, and what we do is we praise God for creating, right. but we take ourselves out of it. It's not In a way, that that's a, that, so what the tradition teaches us, thank you, that's all, and I would say a, a little bit on that, which is that what the tradition teaches is that we need to make our Shabbat table in the language of the rabbis into a mikdash me'at, which means a might, what's the right word for me'at, a miniature, Saint is totally temple. Mm-hmm. And so we have the candles mm-hmm. and we have the bread, mm-hmm. which has been specially prepared. It's called challah because the, the by the way, you may not know this. Um, the reason that that bread is called challah is because in the Leviticus, challah is the dough that you set aside for the priests before you make your bread. So it's called taking challah. So if you want to make kosher challah, you make the dough, and then anyone who knows this, even if they don't know what they're doing, they'll take a part of it and put it aside. And that makes a challah. Um, and it doesn't need to be braided. It doesn't need to be braided. That's why the symbolisms about braided or round or this are the what people do. with, with we, we are symbol makers, right? So we'll look at something, and we will literally invent symbolisms that please us. And that's just fine. Um, so the challah bread is bread that has been consecrated. So we become the priests. <laughs> Judaism both demo- dramatically, in the absence of the temple, Judaism becomes a dramatically democratized tradition, right? Where we're all priests, as it were, and it becomes a, um, uh, a tradition of communication and remembrance through language. Um, as opposed through a mystery. <laughs> Christianity, especially, you know, with the, with the Eucharist and the communion, is the reenactment of a mystery. And instead, we tell a story. 
-hmm. about it. I would say that that's a fair way of describing how Judaism became, survived in exile by, become, by taking words with us. Mm -hmm. And, and we, portable symbols, yeah. And we do tell the story around the table each week. You know, the story of Jesus is told, the story of the night of the Last Supper is told. So the story uh, surrounds the ritual. Um, but we don't have a sacrament. The sacrament, right. We don't, have the, we don't <laughs> enter into that mystery right. as a part of our regular worship. Carol? What I keep hearing is that the blessings, the mitzvot, are the sacrament. Turn, turned into words or turned mm, mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. a, an, act, a, a, an act. Which is interesting with the emphasis in the two traditions, in Judaism, the emphasis on, on word in the form of word. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about w behind the doors in here, you open them and there's the scroll of the Torah. In, Christ, in the Christian um, tradition, you open the doors of the tabernacle in the church and there's the bread and the wine. You know, the two things we've reserved, one is, we you know, talked before about, one is the word made flesh, or the word in bread and wine, the other is the word in word, in text. And so here again, our sacraments, one is word and one is... Yes, I don't want to oversimplify, but there's a lot to this. Yeah. Yeah. Amy? When you say mystery, what mystery is? Mystery is a particular Christian word that I, uh, would you define for us? <laughs> <laughs> in this context, you know what in I'm this, talking yes, about? Yes, I, I do. I do know what you're talking about. Um, in a way, it's, um, you're entering, it's a, a participatory mystery in that what happens in the life of Christ is reenacted within each of us. That there's something that, you know, in history, like the death and resurrection of Jesus, that then becomes an archetype that's patterned in our own souls that we, you know, enter into. Um, in a sort of internal or spiritual... Yeah, Barbara. How... I was like, part of what the um, Eucharist, when the priests will talk about, do this to remember or remember me. Right. So there's a sense of that you're reenacting, not just remembering cognitively, right. but remember. Right, to re-knit together. To re unified again in that kind of this moment from a historical... Right. So as an outsider, and then Joy, I want to hear what you say. Just, uh, I'll, as an outsider... Whenever I hear about like transubstantiation, how the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Christ, my 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 sort of like knee-jerk reaction is that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But that's not what it means if you participate, if you if you enter into it, then you are participating in the mystery of that transubstantiation. Right. Uh, 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 is that more of a miracle than a mystery? No, it's not a miracle. It's it's time out of time. You're leaving regular consciousness. This, yeah, this is what it is understood happens around the altar. Um, in a way, a, a Christian altar is a space set apart from time and space. Mm. You know, and, and that altar intersects with eternity. And so the idea is you're not re-sacrificing Jesus, but that a sort of window is opened into which you are connected to that once-for-all sacrifice that's happened for all time. And the table is simultaneously, the table at the Last Supper that the disciples are gathered around, it's simultaneously the table at the end of time, the great banquet, at the you know, eschatological feast at the end of time. It's sort of time collapses in that moment. All time is present. Um, in the prayers that are said, it says we gather with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So there's a sense that all the realms and all of time intersects in that moment, in that place. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Standing so, in Sinai. Uh, um, I have 
I forgot yeah. your name. Yeah. Marco and then Joya. Yeah, I just wanted to add the connection with mystery and mystical or mysticism. Oh, mystery, yes. yeah. mystical, and that's so, mysticism. That's kind of helpful, right, that mm-hmm. it's about the mystical element in a way. Yeah. Helpful. Joya, this is your bread and butter. Go, Joya. Go, Joya. I promised I wasn't going to. Oh, no. Well, if you, you don't want to break your promise. No, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I promised myself to forget it. I'm not going to enter. But. Yeah. But. But how are we I'm doing? Daughter, I'm a daughter of Ecclesia. I'm a daughter of the Black Madonna and of the Blessed Mother, so I, there is an intuition that comes that sometimes I, that's what happens. But the thing about mystery is it's a very ancient human thing. Ancient. We have been in mysteries, the Eleusian and all these... Right, ever. Greek mystery cults. The and human beings have been involved in mysteries, and they are so brilliant because they're about taking every single one of us exactly where we are, humble and all ratted and tattered, and trying to find the place in our hearts and in our consciousness, right. in our eponia, to become one with the unknown. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. with the known, if you forget the known, you've missed it. If you forget the unknown, you've missed it. So the whole mystery is to put those two together in a human heart and life. Beautifully said. And so let me jump in there. Judaism has sacraments. We just don't call them that. Because this is a fundamental human impulse. What's the Passover Seder? The Passover Seder would be the closest thing we have to a sacrament. When we say in the Seder, we don't say, we say in every generation, we must view ourselves as personally going from slavery to freedom. The story is explicitly not then. And the food we eat on Passover is 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 the Jewish sacrament. Because when we eat the matzah, we are the slaves. When we uh, do the horseradish, when we hold up, we are in that time out of time, once again, re-experiencing liberation, right? That is, the Passover Seder really would appropriately be called a Jewish sacrament. We just don't have that language. The same would be true in every single morning service when, and we're going to talk about this next week when we talk more about liturgy, because we wanted to look into that too. When it says in the liturgy, in the height of the service, let us sanctify your name here on earth as it is sanctified in the heavenly realms. And then we say, holy, holy, holy. And we are, our goal there explicitly is to join the heavenly chorus. That's a sacrament, right? Because what does it mean to join the heavenly chorus, right? Uh, it means that we're not, we're, we're, we're participating in in the mystery of, of the, celestial, in, realms, the celestial realms. So it exists in every good tradition. Uh, it also exists in any good psychological tradition where you want to integrate your, your own experiences with something bigger than yourself. It's like, this is what we're here to do. So uh, um, yes, any, any, any dichotomies we create, we follow, we open the doors and there's the Torah. Uh, these are cultural, we have the bread and wine, these are cultural forms that, but they still all are leading the religious impulse towards that direction. I think that's my conviction. Uh, Joya? I just didn't want to forget again the Blessed Mother because um, the oh, whole yeah. business 
Well, I wasn't going to, I told you, I wasn't going to say anything. It, no, no, no. Some Christians, what do some Christians love most about Madonna Christianity? Mary. And the black Madonna are essential, both because one deals with all the source and pain. The Blessed Virgin Mary. We just, we just shared that before we started. Certain, certain feelings we had of pain and things, of children. And, and it's exactly what the black Madonna takes care of. She is that whole part of the thorn of the mystic rose. Mm -hmm. Every rose which has beauty has thorns. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing of the Madonna is to teach us in our tradition, my tradition, which is very heavily female. Um, uh, the women sing and praise and talk to Jesus and, the, and his mother and the blessed mother. And that's an essential thing to not forget that, that the seponia is often given to women to hold in the family. Tell me what eponia is again. Eponia is the Greek word meaning consciousness, but having to do with experience and feeling and total expression of that. Mm -hmm. And the intuition, the deep intuition that is both philosophical and physical. Uh, and that's what she and that's what she brings, and that's what but of course men have that too, and that's the whole sure. point. But we're not to forget that that's and the and the great goddess. The great showing at the end of the Eleusian, they believe, but they're not sure because it's secret, was a showing of bread. Mm -hmm. It might have been. That's what they think it might And that had to do with the resurrection, too. It might have been. Wow. Wow. So, so I, go ahead. I just want to say, I think it's so beautiful that we can, in this conversation, go to the heart of Judaism and Christianity and not get distracted by all the horrible things Jews and Christians have done uh, in the names of their traditions. It's like, because we're not going there today. We're talking about what we love. And I think that's really important uh, because we get to carry that forward. What did you want to say? Well, I wanted to uh, jump in with that uh, and, and tie it in because you were talking about that it's, it's also physical, the knowing. You know, it's not just philosophical. And it brought to mind, again, incarnation. And so I, I said we would come back around to this. So a, a couple of the Christians in the group said one of the things they most love about the tradition is the doctrine of the incarnation. And people said, well, what's that mean? Um, Good, let's talk about that. Uh, so, uh, to dive into it, and it's, it's one of the things I'd put down in my notes. Why do I love Christianity? Um, and it's, it's this doctrine. Um, and it, it comes from the experience within the Christian tradition that in some way Jesus gives a human face to God. Uh, you get these lines in Christian scripture that uh, St. Paul talks about, uh, the glory of God that shone in the face of Jesus or God was in Christ, God was in Jesus, reconciling the world to God's self. So the sense that what we can know of divine reality in a human life um, is known in Jesus. That somehow the fullness of divine life, lived in human life, that, that, that's encountered in this person. Um, and so it's a sort of particular, peculiar Christian understanding of God, that we, God who is invisible, the script, Christian scriptures talk about this, God who is invisible, who no one has seen, uh, we've seen the glory of this invisible God in Jesus, that he becomes an icon, uh, an image of the invisible. And the way Margot talked about it, she said, well, it's that God is incarnate in humanity. And the, the wider tradition does play it out in this way, that um, the incarnation uh, is sort of revealed in Jesus, given a face in him, but that it's, it really includes all of us, uh, all, all human beings are 
essentially, potentially, faces, not potentially, um, are faces of divine reality. Uh, and that sort of fullness is seen in the Christian tradition in Jesus. But the language of the New Testament talks about the ongoing body of, of Christ, the ongoing body, uh, that it's uh, Jesus sort of initiates this body, but then members of the Christian community are also faces of the same body, the same mystery, the same reality. Um, and you, that might be me. I said we got the same, oh, is it you? No, 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 it's you. I, I started to say, I think my phone has the same ringtone. Um, so, the idea of, of God becoming flesh is really central in uh, the Gospel of John. And there's this profound sort of affirmation of life in the world, life in bodies, um, at the core of Christian doctrine, that God so loved the world that the Word became flesh. Um, and you see a movement away in the life of Jesus from a really uh, sharply ascetical path uh, that's sort of separated from the world. So his mentor, John the Baptist, lives out in the desert, separated from society, um, fasts, doesn't drink alcohol. And then Jesus, it's almost the flip. He moves into the towns, into the villages. He feasts. All of his enemies call him a drunkard and a glutton. He hangs out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. And he's almost erasing the traditional dividing line between what's secular and what's profane. And you see this profoundly uh, embodied embrace of the world. Um, and, and that is what's really at the heart of this doctrine of the incarnation. That we don't have to find God by leaving the world and ascending some ladder, but that we find God in the world, in human life, um, and that the glory of God has shown in the face of Jesus, who becomes the face of the invisible. Beautiful. But, so I want to actually hear from, from other Christians, but, but it raises so many questions for me, such as the, the tendency that I would read into Christian uh, uh, some some streams of Christianity mm -hmm. that the body is somehow uh, and the spirit are somehow at war with each other that the oh, sure. spirit has to transcend the body that this incarnation of our bodies is somehow irredeemable right. or or sinful right <laughs> so, so you, it, you, you uh, do, get, do you understand what I'm asking yeah you get you uh, as Christian Christianity moves out into sort of the Greek and Roman thought world uh, it does start uh, inheriting a sort of uh, mind, body, spirit, body dualism that was mm. sort of particular, was peculiar to Platonic thought. Uh, it's not really in the Hebraic, Semitic roots of Christian thinking, but it very quickly gets sort of added on, layered uh, on. Uh. And what you see St. Paul talking about often, um, let's see, maybe I'll put a piece of paper up to, I'll do it, you talk. Um, you see St. Paul talking in his letters in a lot of contemporary translations about what Jonathan is saying, a war between the spirit and the flesh. And the flesh is weak, and uh, we, we need to focus in on spiritual reality. And I'll write some Greek words. I wasn't planning to do this, but it may be helpful. Um, Paul talks about, we talked about this some weeks back. He talks about the human person being um, pneuma, spirit, and psyche, soul, and soma, body. So spirit, body, soul. Oh, sorry, soul, body. So this integrated whole of these three realities. And then he often talks about this war between spirit and flesh. That word, that Greek word, isn't soma. It's not the body. That Greek word is sarx. 
And it's sort of um, an abstraction that can be translated flesh. It's not talking about a literal body. It's talking about our animal impulses. Oh, and so it's, it's, it's really we know about that. Today, <laughs> so we have different words for it. Today, we would better translate that word in contemporary language as ego. It's, it's our fragmented self. Is it's it our, ego or would we say our, our, our drives? Well, drive, sure, sure. The passions, is in the early Christian tradition, they used the word passions. And they didn't mean it the way we do today. We're passionate people. They meant right. it, those things that pull us off center, uh, that distract us from the true you know, orientation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, it's really our, our fragmented, broken, driven, you know, egoic, all of that self, the impulsive self. Um, Isn't that id? You could, id. you could say id, yeah. Um, and I the mean, Jewish tradition calls it the Yetzer Hara. The inclination to evil, but it, it it does it does get interpreted into which we can talk about body bad, spirit good. We want to separate the two, uh, which is really uh, at total odds with the central Christian doctrine of the incarnation that God so loves the world that God becomes flesh, becomes body, um, and and uses and uses body as a, a vehicle. For divine manifestation, you know that 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 that's the there's this whole incarnational um, downward thrust in the Christian tradition of spirit entering into form, and then it gets Greco-Romanized in the map flips. Is that where the bifurcation happened in the Greco-Roman? I, I think absolutely. I think it's a Platonic import into it's, the Christian it's tradition. It's important to say that first century Judea where Christianity and Rabbinic Judaism were incubating, was deeply influenced by, the, by Greek thought, right. right? By the Greek worldview. There are a thousand Greek loanwords in Rabbinic Hebrew. Including the Seder, right? The Seder was a complete borrowing from a form in a Hellenistic society called the Symposium. I mean, so, so it, I don't think even... It's hard to, to say that... Uh, first century Judea was not was already heavily, heavily influenced by Hellenistic thought. And so it all kind of emerged in this way. And Jewish thought in the first century and second century using different vocabularies. Also gets platonized. Also gets platonized. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, because we absorb the worldview that we live in. We're, we, we're, we're just part of our worldview. We, we, it's so much the way we've learned, how to, that we've learned how to think about things that we assign the categories uh, that the contemporary worldview assigns to it. So, um, uh, but, so it, it, it really plays up beautifully the, in, the inherent um, tension mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Christianity between this incarnating... Incarnational movement and then the spirit body war movement. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, uh, Joya and Jay? Adding to that, uh, Roman Catholics, I don't know how many Roman Catholics there are here, I mean, look, but uh, as a Catholic, you've got to also understand that from, the, from Genesis, God is in the world. And we took that seriously. God is here in everything. So in our sense of the incarnation, God is in every rock, every tree. And it sounds a little strange, right? But mm -hmm. there it is. In every rock, in every tree, in every animal. And that means the whole Megillah. It's part of everything. <laughs> everything. The story's big and long. And then Francis picks it up and doesn't let it go. He 
of Assisi, and he comes back and says, remember, it's a thing you must remember, that it's in this world. Right, Francis is a, tra a transformational. Here. And Jesus, is that the, also part of the body right, of Christ? Francis is also a, part of it. Francis is a really beautiful transformational figure. But Jay? Jesus is part so, of it. So, just yeah. to follow up, I was going to ask this question anyway. If God's in, in everything, then I, I just want to get different perspectives. And so, so, so God is in sin, I, I assume. And I'd like to understand, is there a difference in the definition and criteria of the word sin? Because I'm really lost in that word. I, I honestly... We're going to have to work our way towards it. I want to back away from that to respond to your question in a way that I think will be helpful to okay, filling enough. out this picture. So, it, oh, Gail, and you want to express Just something? Really quick. Yeah. yeah. So, I was very struck that um, the, the point at which Jacob gets the name Yisrael, Israel, mm -hmm. which is his holy name, mm -hmm. really. Right. Um, immediately after, he meets his brother and says, when I look at you, I see God's face. When yes. I your face, yeah. I see God. Right. And it's a direct line. Right. Seeing your glory of God that's shown in the face of Jesus. And then the. Right. Jacob says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God when he sees his brother. That's right. And we have in Judaism that thread that begins in Genesis with saying God's breath breathes into us and gives us life. Well, it's even more explicit than that. It's that, it, and this is why I want to talk, I wanted to direct our attention to this. It says in Genesis that every human being is made in the image of God. So this is one of the fundamentals of Jewish understanding. And, and yes, Gail. And when we get to the medieval Judaism, Kabbalah goes really where you mm -hmm. then went, kind of, that, and where Joy went, that there is nothing but God. God manifests as the physical world. Right. And God that's is more than the physical world, but God also, the physical world is a manifestation right. of God everywhere, every right. rock, every camera. Right, right. We have that stream in Judaism too. Yeah, but because, in Judaism, yeah. it's more of a stream. It's not in the main line the way it is in Christianity. You know, the interesting It's not in the main line in Christianity. Well, They're also sharing what is a, a fairly rarefied, I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's. It, it's always there in Judaism, and it's always there in Christianity. Right, but often it... Incarnation is always there in Christianity, and it's always at the heart of Christianity. But what do what people mean by happens, that? What sometimes happens is that we put a box around Jesus, an right. incarnation box, right. and, and incarnation is interpreted in this sort of you know, kindergarten theology way where God was out there, and then God came down here for 33 years as Jesus, and then God went back out there. Right, and we do the same in right. Judaism by right. saying, uh, you know, God made the world. Right. But then God is separate from the world because God's a character over here and the world's over here. So both of them have, operate on both those levels. Right. Now, but uh, uh, Stu, before you speak, I wanted to add something. Um, so if it says in Genesis that all human beings are made in the image of God, mm -hmm. that becomes a central, central teaching of Judaism. And it's expressed, again, by the contemporaries of early Christians, by the rabbis in the Mishnah, as they say, um, how, when you're, it's, it, 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 it comes in a section of the Mishnah where they're exhorting how you're supposed to exhort witnesses to make sure they don't give false te testimony in a capital case that might involve the, the, the execution of a criminal, uh, of, a, of an accused person. And they, they say, here's how you exhort the witnesses. You say to them, 
See how amazing God is. When Caesar coins, makes a, stamps a coin of the realm with his face on it, every coin looks exactly the same. But when God <laughs> coined the, the, uh, the, stamped the world, every human face is different. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Right? This is the rabbis talking in about maybe the year 100. Then they say, furthermore, uh, why did God create only one human being, Adam, so that no one could say, my ancestor is greater than your ancestor? <laughs> furthermore, th- this is all so that they can communicate the preciousness of human life. Yeah. Furthermore, one who destroys a single life destroys an entire world. One who saves a single life saves an entire world. That's so, also a line that carries over into the Quran. Yes. Where, mm-hmm. where it said that one who takes an, an innocent life, it's as if they've killed the whole of humanity. That's right. So, again, the Quran is about 500 years later than this, but they were deeply influenced by rabbinic Judaism. The, the, uh, so, but my point is, yes. is that if the sanctity of the... Hu- oh, not just the sanctity. If the infinite preciousness of every human life is because we're made in the image of God, then... Why does a new teaching about incarnation have right. to come in? Right. Because Judaism never goes that way. Right. And I don't mean why isn't the right answer. I think it's more like it's interesting yeah. that the a new one, teaching one, one. comes in. What, what do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? What Christianity tries to do with it, um, playing with this idea that's that's in the Christian scriptures that Jesus is the icon or the image of the invisible God, is that. In the beginning, in Genesis, everyone is created, well, the first parents are created in the image of God. Then sin comes into the picture, and it mars the image. The divine image is still in every human being. It's still present in everyone. This is helpful. But the divine image has been sort of marred by our brokenness, sullied. And then Jesus comes, and in Jesus, the divine image is restored to its fullness. And so he shows the fullness of the divine image lived in a human life, and then makes it possible for others to get back on board with that. Through him? Um, through, through his Jesus. example? Through well, this is interesting because and someone can said... You get there with yeah, that? So someone said um, they loved in Judaism that, that there's no intermediary. Right. Ellen, you said it, right? right? That you go straight to God. And sometimes in Christian thinking, uh, it's understood that Jesus becomes the intermediary who sort of stands between the Christian and God. Uh, oh, we were thinking of the priest also in, in yes, uh, and the priest, and that's and, the saints. and that's some of the the language that carries over. Jesus becomes the great high priest who offers the once for all sacrifice to atone for the whole world and in the sacrificial system. Um, the more the more nuanced understanding of the language in the scriptures, it never says Jesus is an intermediary. It says that Jesus is our mediator, and that Jesus mediates God mediates divine reality through his humanity is a different thing than being an intermediary between us. And in a way, the idea is that by mediating divine life, he removes the division, you know? He shows that the divine life can be present in our, hum- in, in our human life. He's mediated it. Um, but it often then falls into a simplistic understanding that he's the intermediary. The way you've expressed that about the human image got sullied by the fall from grace. <laughs> right. And then Jesus, and then there needs to be it. a restoration. That makes uh, uh, that's that, what Christi- That's how Christianity plays with the symbolism. I understand. Whereas in Judaism, and then I'll recognize the people who have questions. Whereas in Judaism, each year the ritual of Yom Kippur, 
where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and, um, uh, and makes expiation for the people. Uh, I won't go into all the beautiful descriptions in the Mishnah, but he comes out and his face is shining, it says. And he's radiant and the people have been forgiven. In Judaism, Yom Kippur is the annual restitu restitution of um, the divine image. Of the divine image and of um, the alignment we're supposed to be in. Yeah. And uh, the assumption is that we'll need it again the next year. But that that's that's where Jesus. So Jesus as high priest mm -hmm. also comes right out of that same Jewish tradition. Just another take on it, Amy. Yeah, and I, I just had. Um, when you talk about the fall of grace, um, and again, you know, this might be a very you know simplistic understanding, but my understanding was that um, they were innocent, and 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 then uh, um, they were tempted, and then mm -hmm. they had sex, and then they fell from grace. The sex isn't <laughs> in the Bible now. It doesn't right. say they had sex. In it also sex. wasn't an apple that they right. ate. Right. But, but so, so you know, with that. Where, where did you hear this say what story right. growing up? Really, like, where did you inherit this read from? I that was just what I had okay. understood that they were tempted, that right. they were innocent, they were naked, they weren't ashamed of their nakedness, right. and then they were tempted and had sex, right. fell, and then, right. and then what happened? And then that the whole world fell, fell. You know right. that then we then that was the sin. Right. Um, so. And, and when you ever, whenever I hear about Jesus, I never hear I hear that he doesn't have any girlfriends. Right. So, so is there like? <laughs> this is great. This is great. I always want to know this too. Right. So, um, although I've heard uh, some talk about a little scuttlebutt about Mary. <laughs> right. Right. But, right. But, that was in People magazine. Right. So I guess my question is: Is it perceived by 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 Christians that Jesus was celibate? And if so. Is that kind of something that you need to believe in? Mm. So it's it's not it's not. That was a great question. It's a great it? question. It's not central to Christian theology that Jesus um, needed to be celibate. It is uh, central to Christian teaching that he was. Um, that it it wouldn't mar the theology of the incarnation had he been married. But the historical memory that's preserved in the gospel record is that uh, Jesus was. Single. Uh, that could be correct or incorrect. I think for a lot of Christians it doesn't matter that much. Uh, the reason I think it's probably likely that he was celibate uh, or single is that the Gospels never shy away from communicating uh, all the apostles, their wives, they'll go to Peter's house and his mother-in-law's there. There's no shying away from marriage. Um, Jesus is present at uh, a wedding that he's invited to. You know, so marriage is never, Jesus even speaks very highly of marriage um, in the Gospels. So it's never seen as a bad, dirty thing. Um, my sense is that as this sort of eschatological prophet who was on a mission, who was constantly traveling, who was moving from town to town, there wasn't much time for him to be a family man. Um, if he were, it would be no affront to my Christian worldview. Um, the argument that, that he was perhaps partnered is really an argument from silence. Uh, there's no evidence in the gospel record that would say he was, and I think it's often wishful thinking. We kind of want Jesus to, you know, have had that intimacy. But then why, was, why, why then, 
it, you know, it's his, the, his mother. Why is this a virgin birth? Why all is right. that? Well, now, right. Right. Well, that's right. that, now that moves into, yeah. yeah. So rather than talk about the historical record of the Gospels, talk about where Christianity goes with that. Sure, sure. Um, we certainly do get uh, uh, the rise of celibate monasticism, celibate priesthood that grow out of these models. Well, it seems like Jesus was celibate. His mother is well, becomes ever virgin in the tradition, although you read in the gospel records um, about his brothers and sisters. But she did have more children, yeah, right? right? Don't worry but, about being yeah, consistent here. But Wait. Catholic doctrine says, well, that word can also be translated cousins, or, they, or, or the teaching is sometimes that um, Joseph uh, was elderly, he was a widower, and he had children from a previous marriage, and those are the ones referenced as Jesus' siblings. So there are these ways of explaining around it, but the text, on the face of the text, Mary had other children than Jesus. Um, but yeah, I think as Christianity moves particularly into Greco-Roman thought, mind-body dualism, body is bad, spirit is good, sex is bad, you know, it, it moves away from the Semitic roots. Of course, in Judaism, you know, be fruitful, multiply, you know, sex isn't bad, it's a celebrated part of creation. Um, but Christianity loses that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you do get, it does start to show up in some of the uh, writings of Paul, there's a sense of the imminent end of the world is coming. And so Paul says, it's fine to marry, it's better that you marry than that you're burning with passion, it's good. But he says, I would have it that you would all be single as me, and that you would be, you know, preparing, because he thinks the end is in sight. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> but... Barbara, whoever, um, Barbara, yeah, you, you even want so to say something for Barbara. Barbara and Stu, and, and, and Stu, then I'm going to move back towards Jay's question. Okay. So my oh, yeah. Oh. No, 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 no but no. I just forgot, Please. we lost track. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't lost track. Okay, so my understanding is, yeah, I mean, that we can get into that kind of messy interpretation, but a lot of the, the um, mothers and fathers of the tradition saw that whole Adam-Eve type story was that somehow we became separate and the unification mm -hmm. that uniting with God that somehow we became wounded or broken or separate and so when you have the Gospels it's Gospels meaning good news it's wow the good news is we are not separate God is here God is uh -huh, Emmanuel that's the good news. That there is a God is with us that we are the kingdom is here now mm -hmm. not the back in the past you know, the, through, you know, the paradise or in the future. It's here, not now. You have access to the kingdom because God is longing for us and we're longing for God and there's this connection. And that's the good news. That's the that's good so news. That's so clear. Thank you for explaining that. And that's that. so Jewish. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because that's the Messiah, too. Yes, uh, Susan and then Stu. Hello, Thank you. Um, the poem you read, the Hafiz poem, that talks about other, we're just too frightened. Right, unless the light touches our being. Yeah. It, I'm hearing that echoed in everything we're talking about yeah. and, and how events transpire. And when I hear the poem, it, and I, you know, maybe these aren't the right words, but it's like the feminine got so lost. Sure. That, uh, that needs to be raised, that yes. That the patriarchy took this whole thing over mm -hmm. into mistaken literalism, mm -hmm. into the lack of metaphoric reality, mm -hmm. into your intuition and what you feel in your body doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what was going on in the historic time period, 
but it was always going on as far as I'm concerned. And still is. Yeah, it's almost that it's not that almost not that the feminine got lost, it's that it was suppressed the whole time. Exactly. You know, it's we've been patriarchal for quite so a long, 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 and, long and while. It's, it's our lens. Right. Looking through all mm -hmm. of this. And how can we look at all of this through a different lens as well? Yeah. And and the feminine has always been an undercurrent in both Jewish and Christian traditions. Of course, there's the figure of, of wisdom, of Hakma and in Hebrew scripture, right. uh, of course, there's the devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary in Christian tradition, um, and and there are the amazing women disciples that are constantly around Jesus throughout his ministry in the gospel text that somehow the church conveniently keeps forgetting about, you know, but it's or still has a, forgotten. It's still about. an underground narrative, and 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 so I think I think we should grapple with that in some class we some. Maybe we do one class focusing on uh, the divine or, feminine or maybe just, traditions. Not just one class. I mean, it's like we should like yeah. grab that. Yes. yes. Okay. So don't make make sure I don't forget. I will make sure you don't forget. Then the voice of our mother speaks. That's right. Stu is next. Then Joya. But then I really want to say a couple things. It was just a comment how uh, what we so did we did with sacrifice. Yeah. And uh, John, the Gospel of John. He's the only one who changes the Last Supper. John says the Last Supper was not Passover. It was the night before. Right, so Jesus becomes the Passover. He becomes yeah. the Paschal yeah. Lamb that's yeah. ordered. So he then dies for the sin. So right, that's just, that's right. right. Mm -hmm. John, John tries to make the symbolism much more explicit. In, in um, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' death uh, happens the day after the Passover because they're celebrating the Passover Seder together, and then the next day is crucified. John actually shifts the chronology a little bit to make the symbolism more in your face that Jesus dies on the Passover itself. Yes. Um, yeah. There was something else that came into my mind when you said that, and I've lost it already. <laughs> Just interrupt me when it comes back. Joya? Mine is a very specific thing in answer to you that in our, my particular tradition, the women always cut the bread and made the symbolic sign, and it was always holy. And the women, the grandmothers, the great, whoever, would cut the bread and give it out at dinner, and that bread could not be lost without being kissed or taken care of, given to others, or, or made breadcrumbs. Something that it was that holy. So the women in the tradition have been, in a sense, a kind of home rabbi. They That's have right. been, in my tradition, the rabbi in the home. The homemaker. The, the, yeah. home, the whole thing of keeping the spiritual life of the family together. Right, the heart. And that was not a small thing. Uh, well, I'm, I, we're going we're gonna to get together and okay. focus on this uh, in a not-too-distant future. Um, but wait, I needed to share this now. Oh, you remember? Well, no, you, we were going to come on, back I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're I'm going to I'm going there. there. We okay. have a few minutes, and I'm heading right. in that direction, but right. I'm not going to answer your question entirely. So, okay. uh, let's, so this was very helpful. In the, the way the rabbis, this, the way rabbinic theology, which is the theology that, that I have studied and inherited, not that I necessarily agree with entirely, but, you know, it's like the Jewish take through the Hellenistic period, is that humans are born with two competing drives inside. They're not exactly competing because they're there's a hierarchy to them. One they call the Yetzer Hara. The Yetzer Hara literally means the evil inclination. The evil, right? And, uh, uh, but when you read what the rabbis have to say about it, 
It's our appetites and drives, right? Our um, ego's not the same as appetite and drive. No, ego is, no, this is more of our appetites and drives. Well, I don't know, Freud would call it thanatos and eros. Um, I don't know, but the point is, and these appetites and drives have to be, in the Jewish mindset, cannot be expunged. Mm-hmm. They're part of the human. In fact, the rabbis are explicit that if you tried to expunge it, there would be no life. Right. Right? Yeah. So it's a very sophisticated, actually, take on this. But that the purpose of parents, of teachers, of society, is to teach people, train people, how to put their appetites and drives, their yetzahara, in service of the yetzahatov which is the, the, in, the good inclination, which is the ability to transcend appetites and drives, sublimate them, channel them into holy activity, right? This is rabbinic sort of sacred psychology. It's absolutely mainstream rabbinic Judaism. Um, and that there's, it's a struggle that humans, and the way, they, the way the rabbis read the struggle is they say, look, it says in Genesis, Vayitzer Adonai et Adam. God created the human being in God's image, but Yitzer has two yuds in it, has an additional letter in it, because they got both Yitzers. In other words, when we were created, the Yitzhara comes from God. So if we're going to start talking about where sin comes from, the Yitzhara comes from God and the Yitzhara Tov. That's why it says, you should love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Behold, Levavcha. The rabbis say there's an extra bet in there, because it could, could have been, don't worry about this, but that's how rabbinic interpretation works, because with both of your, both of your essences, you know, that are mingled together in your being. So the rabbis have a very complex view of human beings, uh, but are absolutely clear that it was all given to us by God. Mm-hmm. That evil doesn't dwell, that, that evil is the product of a yetzer hara that isn't right. integrated, integrated properly, properly right. and trained properly and so that we have the capacity for evil inherent in us. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we have the capacity for sin inherent in us. Therefore, f- human free choice, the, not free choice, humans have choice. That's what the Torah says over and over again. You can follow the holy path or you can stray from it, right? And they don't make it, Judaism doesn't give an explanation for this. Just a description. Just this. this is what it is. This is what we observe. We have this capacity for transcendent goodness, and we have this capacity for an unimaginable selfish evil. And so, I guess it all came from God, and we must be here being tested so that we can create a holy society where everybody channels their drives and impulses into to the greater good. So, um, so, in that sense, sin in Judaism isn't, is an inherent, not condition of humans, but an ine- inherent and inevitable possibility mm-hmm. of humans and needs to be accounted for. That's a sh- very packed answer to what you were saying. But what I appreciate about it from a Jewish perspective is it's, it always feels like a reality-based description of what humans are like. Yeah, but, but I was wondering if, if, if Matthew, if, if your um, uh, teachings are similar to what Jonathan just said. 
You know, uh, you, you get really interesting descriptions of, of the inner reality uh, of the person in the writings of the early Christian monastic tradition when they talk about the passions and how to integrate them. Um, and it's, it becomes a model similar to this. Uh, sin gets a little bit of a heavier tone in so much of Christian theology. And where it gets the heaviest, actually, is after the Protestant Reformation. So a lot of the popular Christian theology that we all hear and know um, comes later in history. Uh, what Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and, and Anglican theology um, all affirm is that with the fall from the Edenic state, uh, the image of God was not erased. It wasn't destroyed. It was marred. It was covered over. And it needed to be restored to its fullness, but it wasn't expunged. Protestant Reformation theology, particularly under John Calvin, um, promulgated a doctrine of utter depravity. And that teaching said, in the fall, the image of God, it wasn't mucked up a little bit, it was erased. And so we're utterly fallen, utterly depraved. And so um, what had always been a part of Catholic teaching um, is uh, what's called natural theology. And that we can know things of God naturally, by observing the natural world, by observing ourselves. We can use our rational intellect to come to know something of God. Maybe we need revelation to fill out the picture, but, you know, that's a part of it. Um, Protestant, this extreme Protestant theology said, no, you can't use your rational mind, your intellect, any of that, because it's all been totally messed up by the fall. The image of God's gone. All you can do is trust in Jesus Except that he's, you know, the sole <laughs> salvation, and he'll he'll pull you he'll pull up. You up. Um, that was a good description of Calvinism, I guess. Yeah. Is that what we're dealing with? I mean, is that is that what we are clinically dealing with? You know, I think I think it's probably yeah. a, 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 a part of it is some of that dark Protestant theology that says. Interesting. Yeah, you both wanted to say something. The original meaning of sin. The, the Gospels is missing the mark. Missing the mark. So right. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. That's from the Hebrew. Right. So it's like coming into alignment or wholeness mm-hmm. again is actually, so it's, it's much more not to push away from it, but to just bring it back into an alignment. Right. Yeah. It's, the same, in, it's the, the same in Hebrew. Hebrew. The Greek, the Greek New Testament word is hamartia, which is an archery term to miss the mark. And which, is a direct, exactly. a direct which is a direct translation yeah. of the Hebrew. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. I was going to say, Oh, cool, cool. Now it's two o'clock. Um, this is usually when we wrap up. You know, I want to I want to throw out there that Jonathan and I, when we talked about this session, we said we wanted to finally get to Carol's question from a few weeks back. Why do you love your tradition? What do you love about Jesus? What do you love about Judaism? I think that's been present in it, this conversation. It, it has it has been, but I think there's something more that maybe we can maybe we can touch off with some of it next week. All right. Um, but I, I feel like we still haven't really gotten there. Do you feel like we have? Well, I, we certainly have approached It's it. been a loving conversation, I think. I, yeah. I, I, yes, but just to, I would really love, in a safe environment, to hear people talk about 
what they love about Jesus. Yeah. Because that's what yes. we hear. Oh, we hear it all the time. That's right. And, 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 and you know, I talk to people who say that's, that's their experience. Right. What does that I've mean? But I've never been brave enough or smart enough to say, yeah. I, 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 let's, so let's, let's, try to, let's try to touch on Thank that a you. little Thank bit. You. Next week we're going to dive into our liturgical traditions, our liturgical maps. Well, we can and, start and, with that. And part of that uh, is what I love about Christianity when we talk about our liturgical life, um, but maybe we can say a word about it. Um, uh, we'll get quick comments from several people. Ah, I brought that just in case, but I thought we could. Oh, I thought oh, we could end with. The, oh. I thought we could end with the chant that we started with. Uh, um, and so we will. Okay. This may not be good. Uh, we, we, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Diane. Please. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good. We're really good friends. Yeah. Confession. Yeah. Confession. Confession. Yeah. With sin. We were just talking yeah, yeah. about sin. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what about it? Um, it's it's uh, age-old part of the Christian tradition. I'll just try to say something really quickly. Um, but I want to. We can bring it up again in the future. We can it, because it, it's part of the liturgical tradition it, too. It, it develops into a very sort of um, mechanical, legalistic way in some forms of Roman Catholicism. Uh, it, it doesn't. It has a more pastoral. This sounds bad. I'm not trying to be anti-Catholic here. Um, it, it doesn't have the same confession. Didn't develop the same kind of. Um, mechanical juridical sort of thing in the Anglican tradition. Um, really, it's the understanding, is, and it goes back to a priestly understanding. Um, it comes down to the idea that sometimes we need our forgiveness to be sacramentalized for us. We need forgiveness to be given a human face. We may know intellectually that we're forgiven, because the text says we're forgiven, but sometimes we need that forgiveness mediated because Christianity is an incarnational tradition. We know God through human life. We need another human face to say, you're forgiven. Um, and that, at, at its best, that's the core of it, that you need to, the Christian scriptures talk about confessing your sins one to another. Um, it's great to confess to God, get it off your chest that way, but sometimes you need to say it to another person and have them mediate forgiveness through their humanity. Nicely put. Yeah. I hope we talk more about the monastic tradition. Yeah, I want to do it's that. It's down here. It's, yeah. I think that's a really important distinction, and it's really appealing on many different yeah. levels for somebody totally outside that tradition. Yeah, and because it's, it, it's a universal phenomenon. In other traditions as well, monasticism develops, but not in Islam and Judaism. Um, and I think there's a reason that it doesn't develop in either of those traditions. We can talk about that. Gail? I'm with Carol about talking more about Jesus, but I really particularly like what Barbara was talking about intimacy. Intimacy. Yeah, I'd love to say something about that. The devil, yeah, yeah. Put Satan down. The great oh, Satan. Yeah, it's yeah. a vegetarian meat. <laughs> okay, Satan. Okay, yeah. I, I would love to understand what the difference is between a priest and a minister. Yeah. And oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The the really just a really simple um, answer to that quickly is. In Christianity, like Jonathan said, Christianity democratized priesthood, and the Christian scriptures teach priesthood of all believers. Because it used to be hereditary in, in right. biblical right. And it was right. taught priesthood of all believers. Um, the scriptures say that Jesus has uh, 
raised up a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Which and is so, a quote from Exodus. So all of, all of, every Christian in that sense is a priest. And then there are ordained or sacramental priests who serve a function within liturgical worship. Um, but in a way, that ordained sacramental priesthood is mirroring back the priesthood of all believers. And so it's sort of a both and. But the priesthood language remains in Catholic traditions. And, I, when, and I say ca- when I say yes, when I say Catholic, I mean Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox. I consider those Catholic Christian traditions um, because we still maintain uh, that sacrificial aspect of the priesthood in relation to communion, the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. Um, and that understanding is stripped away in some Protestant traditions, and it becomes just a sort of memorial meal, commemoration. It, so the priesthood thing gets removed from it. Okay, so we'll chant. Uh, we, oh, yeah. What people are starting to filter out, right. and I hate when that happens, because I know people have schedules. So we're not going to hand out this syllabus. We're going to talk, and we'll revise the syllabus. Oh, this still is good. I think this still, well, we've got all oh, these we've got so want. many things we want, and we're going right. to think about it again. However, so uh, this... Remember, this is not our last chance. Even these four weeks are not our last chance. Yeah, yeah. This we'll is like, this is so great. So um, let's end with the chant. Let's, let's end with the Woo! chant that... Uh... So let's, let's take a moment just to center ourselves again. to drop out of our mental space into our hearts, into our bodies. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Slowly blooms the rose within. Slowly blooms the Slowly blooms the rose wind.
may the rose of divine love bloom in each of our hearts. Right. May the rose be with you. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you all. See you next week, God willing. Yeah. Well, no. we want to revise. We're going to revise. <laughs>